All right, we're gonna test your audio. Some people we give favorite herbs, favorite dishes, favorite cuisines. With you, name your top five fast food beverages. McDonald's high C orange. Yes. McDonald's orange juice at breakfast time when you're slightly hungover. Wendy's Dr. Pepper, I think it was Wendy's. Whatever fountain drinks that they have where you can do a lemonade and an iced tea, typically at like the higher end ones. And then Burger King's, they had the Ecto Cooler, I think. It was either Burger King or McDonald's. You're so on it. Fantastic. You sound great. Let's rock. Hey, everyone. I'm Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is brought to you by our friends at Wickles Pickles. Wickles is a family-run business, and their pickles are made using a 90-year-old family recipe. 9-0. 90-year-old recipe. And they're packed proudly in Alabama. Wickles has two varieties, and they both have a custom blend of spices and fresh ingredients. I'm partial to the first one, the original Wicked Brine, which is a little sweet and it has some spice, some heat in there. But they also have a dirty dill line, it's called, if you like more of that classic dill flavor. Wickles has a new item called Wicked Hula Pickles, which I recently got my hands on. I was talking about them a few episodes ago. It has pickles, it has little pieces of jalapeno and pineapple in there. They're quite spicy if you're a spice fan, and they're really delicious. I also don't want you to think I'm cheating on the spicy red sandwich spread and their wicked jalapeno relish because I love those on a hot dog, burger, sandwich, anything. But these wicked hula pickles pack a punch. Here's what I also love about Wickles Pickles. Wickles believes in giving back to their community. Through donating food and other resources, they support various organizations, including community food programs and disaster relief efforts. Thank you, Wickles. If you want to learn more about Wickles Pickles and their whole line of products, you can visit WicklesPickles.com and follow them on social media at Wickles Pickles. Wickles, we thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at BeyondThePlateMerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's BeyondThePlateMerch.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is a chef, author, and TV personality. She was born in South Korea and adopted by a family in Kentwood, Michigan. After her mother suggested she go to culinary school, she attended Le Cordon Bleu in Chicago and then made her way through some amazing kitchens in Boston. You likely know her as the winner of Bravo's Top Chef Season 10 or as co-host of 36 Hours on the Travel Channel or True TV's Fast Foodies. And soon you can watch her as Elton Brown's co-host on Netflix's new Iron Chef reboot and on National Geographic's new series, Restaurants at the End of the World. So basically, if you turn on your television, you can expect to see her across on the four or so different networks. This incredibly talented chef also has a cookbook and has partnered with Line Hotels for her first restaurant, Arlo Gray in Austin, Texas. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Chef Kristen Kish. Uh, Chef, rumor has it Instagram increased the number of characters in your bio since you have so many things going on. Is that true? (laughs) It has been an ongoing thing of trying to figure out how to make it where you can get more. 
but I learned a trick and I'm pretty sure I learned it on YouTube where you write it in your notes and not in the bio. For some reason, you can get away with organizing them a little bit different, but I'm at the max currently. If I get rid of the emojis, I can throw another TV show in there maybe. I love it. Okay. So you have a restaurant, you have multiple TV shows. You have a wife who also works in the biz. Let's start a little cliche. How do you find balance? I don't believe in balance. I don't think anything is perfectly balanced. Balance life, balance diet, balance work-life balance, balance responsibilities and irresponsible tendencies. I think everything is about harmony and how it works together. So I know for me, if you were to say balance, let's look at your look at my month. Okay, that would mean balance it out to be 50% work, 50% whatever, or however you want to do it. I find that I can go as long as I can because I'm an introvert. And so long as I feel like I have adequate amount of time at the right amount of time, given the project to recharge, I can go back and do it again and again and again. So it's all about harmony over balance for me. So interesting. I love hearing people that like are an introvert yet. You think they're so opposite, you know? Yeah. Every picture I see you in, first of all, I should tell you, I think you know this, but I work with Rachel Ray and I think it was this past season you were on her show maybe and she called me after. She's like, dude, Kristen Kish (laughs) is the shit. You need to have her. (laughs) She loved having you on. That's awesome. Every pic I see you and you look happy. And I know social media for some people, it's like a highlight reel and all, even though yours seems like pretty legit, but your, your pictures seem like genuine, real, whether it's cheese and crackers or cinnamon toast or, you know, whatever it may be. Like we talk about finding balance. How about happiness? Where do you find that? I think generally I am a happy person. Of course, I have times where I'm grumpy or annoyed, irritable. My wife will tell you, like I can be all those things at any point given the day, but that doesn't mean that I'm not happy at the core of who I am. And I think I recognize what that feels like and what it looks like simply because for the majority of my life, I was unhappy truly from like the core of my being was so unhappy because I was a multitude of different reasons, but I know what that feels like. And so I am genuinely happy with my life, with how I feel about myself, with the outlook I have just kind of in general. But again, that does not negate the fact that I am also sometimes grumpy and not always with a smile on my face. Like, what was that point when you said you like were unhappy? Was there a moment or something that like turned that? I think as soon as I entered into like that teen, angsty teen stuff. So we're already dealing with like hormones and high school and like whatever, all this stupid stuff that happens during that time. I'm also battling my sexuality during that time, fully understanding and knowing that I felt different. And then all of a sudden when all your friends start to shift in high school and they start to get boyfriends and that's what you're supposed to do, I was just like, oh my God, this is what life is going to be. Is this actually the happiest you can be? Like, I can't even imagine such a thing. And so that was like really a lot of the part because I mean, that's a huge piece of who I am and living my most genuine life. So that that caused a lot of problems for me. Got it. Okay. So take us back to Kentwood, Michigan. What were you up to? What was like little Kristen Kish getting into? Oh my God. Happy. Just so happy. Like clingy. Never really wanted to be alone. Always like hanging on my mom's leg or like sitting on my dad's lap or something. And I do, I mean, psychologically and like thinking back to my upbringing and my beginnings of my first four months of life of being adopted and being abandoned, like the whole thing. So I I do believe there is some correlation, but like it was for me, 
the most perfect Midwestern Michigan upbringing. Like we lived in like the suburbs where everyone had the same matching lamp that turned on at dark or whatever. And, you know, you ride your bike to McDonald's or the gas station to get, I was obsessed with that beef jerky that looked like it was chewing tobacco. Yeah. And you'd like oh, yeah. suck all the like, salt so, out of it. Yeah. That's yeah. so funny. <laughs> I like that and candy. And it would be like the thing you do. I played little league softball when I was a kid. I mean, it was like snow cones and Disney World in the summer and sledding down the back hill in the winter. Yeah. Tell me about your family, mom, dad. They're you're... the best. My mom is... Both my parents are now retired, but my dad was a packaging engineer. And so I was like the cool kid that always had like the proper ready-made boxes for any little thing I needed transport. When I went to college, like packed up like a professional, like little slits for my pencils, like random things like that. And my mom was a teacher for a very long time and she taught mostly early childhood development and child psychology. And then my brother, who is eight years older than I am, classic like swimmer, golfer, in high school kind of guy and he's a mechanical engineer so he designs transmissions i always like to think about that because like you cook like dad was <laughs> this like meticulous packaging person mom taught you i feel like all these things kind of align yeah you know what? i've never actually thought about it like that you're right because all the conversation i've had it's like oh your parents are like this kind of smart and your brother's in that same i like same brain space as them and i'm cooking but you're right it is all very detail-oriented and this level of teaching people. You just taught me something. I love it. Thank you. There's the flip side, which is like, oh, so mom and dad didn't work in food. But no, they worked in what they worked in. And you may, maybe like subconsciously or not, picked up some of those things. You know, when I get career. asked that question again, I will reference you in this conversation and give that answer now because that's like the best that's a much better answer than the one i was giving i love it is there someone like mom dad or your brother who's your biggest fan wow i'd have to say my I, all, all three of them i think they're the i think they're my biggest fan even without all this stuff but just like we kind of talked about before i was definitely not I did not have it all together for a very long time and i think there was periods of time a long period of time where my parents didn't think I was gonna be okay. <laughs> and so I think their pride comes from the fact that I am okay, not because of what I'm doing and not because of my jobs and what I am publicly, but just the fact that I'm okay and I'm happy. The fact that I found my wife and I'm living my life. And I think that's, that's why. That's awesome. What were family dinners like at home growing up? So they had a lot of, there were a lot of different times and categories in which we leaned into each section of like what family dinner meant. My brother, because he is eight years older than I am, at a, there was a short amount of time where we all lived under the same roof, where I was old enough to be old enough. And he was still below 18, where he was still living with my parents. And so in general, I mean, we all we had the oak dining room table that fit four. You know, you have the leaf that you can put in to fit six on like a on a fancy dinner day. And we all had our seats at the table that everyone knew. That's dad's seat, mom's seat, John's seat, my seat. And it was a mix of meatloaf, canned green beans, and a baked potato to my dad grilling Costco, or I think it, it wasn't Costco at the time. It was um, Sam's Club. Sam's Club, like bulk steaks on the grill. It was a nice combination of things that were homemade and things that were bought in. We definitely also sometimes went to fast food to grab dinner. So it was all, it, it kind of all depended. My parents were, you know, full-time workers, so. What was a special occasion meal? Oh, 
I mean, I don't know if it's a special occasion, but it was the one meal that I always requested on my birthday. And it was this chicken dish. And it was, I'm pretty sure like my mom learned it off the back of like a Weight Watchers card at some point. But it was like a really simplified, dumbed down version of like chicken a la king without knowing it was that. So it was like this chicken that was cooked in like a gravy. My mom did potatoes and green beans in it. I don't even know exactly what is in chicken a la king anymore. But it was like a gravy chickeny kind of stew situation. And it was my favorite. Were you into food or when did you start getting into food? I was into the idea of cooking long before I was into the idea of food. And so cooking to me, I started taking to it at five years old when I would watch Great Chefs of the World on Discovery Channel. And so the process of cooking was instilled very early on. I've always loved to eat. Like my mom would be like, how is this seven-year-old child like crushing down like six years of corn at dinner time? Like, how is this making sense? So in that sense, I was into food, sure. But I wasn't into it in the way that I guess maybe some would assume that I was into it. Was mom doing most of the cooking? No, it was a mix. I do remember it was a good like 50-50 balance, I think. Speaking of balance that I don't say exists, from my memory, my dad always would make, he would make homemade chicken fingers with like Miracle Whip and Dijon mustard. You know, bread them and like fry them. My mom's meatloaf still remains the greatest thing ever and I will never attempt to make meatloaf. And so I do remember both of them equally cooking. Did you want to help in the kitchen? Not really. I liked the kitchen when it was only mine. And I had my chef knife that was like this long, like 10 inches, 12 inch long chef knife that was very dull um, on one of those like flimsy cutting boards that are different colors. And I would just like chop all the vegetables in the refrigerator. How old were you? I started at five. Wait, you were doing this at five? Yeah, it was, I watched it on TV and I knew that I could do it. And so it's kind of how I learn. I'm a visual learner. So if I see something done to most extents, I can at least feel comfortable enough to try it. So that's still how I operate like daily life chores and household things. Like if you don't know how to do that, just find a, find a video and then go try it. Like I tried to caulk this baseboard in, in one of our bedrooms. It's not great, but I could do it. I stopped after one line because I was like, I'm gonna make this room look awful. So I felt comfortable enough to do it. That's so cool. What was the first thing you ever cooked? Chocolate pudding. However, it wasn't edible. So it was based off the idea, you know, during Thanksgiving, you make gravy. And I don't know if this is how you grew up having it, but you thicken it with cornstarch, a slurry. And so when it'd sit in the refrigerator, it would gelatinize and become like jello-y. And so understanding that and having grown up with all that like leftover gravy that I was like, this is disgusting. I was like, I can make pudding because I just thin it just a little bit more and I can make it creamy and like thick. And so I made it with milk and I'm pretty ad- pretty sure I added sugar. Why? I don't know. Because I made it turn brown with soy sauce because I didn't have chocolate. The adventures of cooking, I guess. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. But that's such interesting thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about it now. I'm like, I, I had a feeling and I guess maybe I was on something, onto something before I recognized that I was. So interesting. You modeled in high school? Oh, gosh. Loosely. At 13, I was scouted in the local mall. It was, we were in like the average like tween store buying like the little t-shirts and whatever kind of stuff I was wearing at the time. And a scout came up to me, local. Again, we are in Kentwood, Michigan. We are not in like New York City and this happens. So it was a small 
agency and I was very, very tall for that age. I'm five nine and I'm pretty sure I was five nine at the time at 13. And I was very, very, very skinny, like awkwardly. So one of those. And so, yeah, they scouted me and I did some things here and there. Yeah. Got it. First restaurant job. When was that? Well, my first food service job. So when I was 16, I was a hostess slash bus person at Lone Star Steakhouse and Saloon, not far from the local mall. And I would clean out ashtrays and I'd like wipe stuff down and I'd go into the kitchen and I'd feel so awkward in there because it was like a bunch of like older men. And I'm like, can I have a French fry? And they're like, yeah, yeah, take a French fry, you know, that kind of thing. And so I did that. And then I was one of the pretzel twisters in the window at one of those pretzel shops. Ours was called Twist and Shout. Today's Auntie Anne's or whatever. (laughs) Correct. And then from there, I managed and I was like this worker at a smoothie shop, like smoothies and like had powders and different things you added into them also in the mall. So yeah. Like any great teenager, I I grew up in the mall. Totally. So when and why does your mom encourage you to go to culinary school? So after high school, I went to a traditional university. In Michigan? I went in in Michigan called Grand Valley State University. It was about 45 minutes from where I grew up. I was living in the dorm. My best friend in high school, we were roommates living like the college life that everyone was so excited to get to. And I'm like hell, this is what I have to do. This is what life is. And I guess I have to go through the motions, going to football games and, you know, going to frat Halloween parties where you're dressed in like a little kitten outfit, like so stupid. Also freezing your ass off in the middle of winter. Right. Michigan. Sure. It took a toll on me. It only lasted about half the semester. And I, I realized I was horribly miserable. I kind of unofficially moved back home and would commute into my classes. And I was very, very, very depressed, horribly depressed. And so after that year finished, I completed my first year. My mom was like, okay, clearly you're you're not going back. So we're not going to even touch that. You've always loved cooking. You always love Chicago and you like want to get out of Michigan. So why don't we check out a culinary school in Chicago? And that's how it all started. I loved reading about that, too, because so many guests, you know, they say, oh, I talked about going to culinary school and my parents are like, you're not going or, you know, they're against it. And I loved hearing the encouragement from your mother. Similarly, I went to a university for two years until I was like, what the hell am I doing there? (laughs) And then I left and went to culinary school. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you come to Le Cordon Bleu in Chicago. Yeah, correct. How was that? I do. It was great. I mean, I remember my parents and I drove down. My mom and my dad walked us through, you know, took us to the admissions place. We met a guy, Toby. I don't know how I remember his name, probably because my parents' dog later, much later on in life is named Toby. But he took us on a tour of the school, gave us the rundown. My parents like talked like the financial stuff and the decision was made. And so then, you know, you place the order and you sign the things to get that luggage bag of knives and like teaspoons and just random equipment. And then I just, I waited until the summer was over. And then my parents got me a great apartment in the city and I went to school. Did you love it? I loved a lot about all of it. I loved being out of Michigan. I loved living in the big city in Chicago by myself and this great high rise that I'm not paying for. My parents are very generous and I'm just loving this freedom. And I think I I loved the culinary school aspect because I was also free to explore me as like a person where I didn't feel like I had to be a certain kind of person because I am surrounded by the same people I grew up with all the time. When were you there, if you don't mind me asking? 2004 to 2007, I believe. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So take us through some of your career highlights. 
kitchens, whatnot, after your time, you graduate Le Cordon Bleu, what happens? Well, I graduate culinary school. I'm all through culinary school. I'm going to school and I'm always on time and I'm very diligent about going. My off time, however, is where I started to like really mess up as a human being, you know, do it, making poor decisions, having to learn the hard way. And eventually my parents, after I graduated, said, well, if you're not going to get a job while you're in Chicago after school, then you're going to come home because we're not going to keep supporting you. And I was like, okay. And so there are so many reasons why I did not accept a job. I had an externship. I had a job. I, I did all these things, but I was looking for like the top, top job because my own insecurity was driving this thing. It was like, oh, Chrissy, you can't just be a cook. Like, top, what are your friends going to think? Like you want to go right chef. to be executive chef. Okay. Oh, yeah. I remember applying for executive sous chef at the Intercontinental in Chicago, just graduating. And I was like, I knew I was, listen, I was probably above average in school, but that does not mean I'm above average in the workplace, in the workforce at that point in my life. And so I refused to get a job and my parents were like, well, you're coming back home. So I moved back home. I lived in my parents' house for four months. Again, still very much closeted also at this time. When you say you were making some, you were going to school, great student on time, but you were making some bad decisions and like personal things. Can you give an example? I had my party days. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Wild party days. Okay. <laughs> and unfortunately those wild party days, once I left school became my every day, right? So it wasn't just on the weekends. Now it was every day because I refused to get a job. So one that, that obviously worries my parents and, and concerns them rightfully so. And then it also makes me feel like a garbage human, which in turn spirals the depression, which in turn spirals the anxiety, which then in turn makes me want to keep going out and partying. So it was just this vicious circle. And so I moved back home for about four months. I lived in my pajamas in my parents' house. I did not leave the house. Oh God, it was, it was awful, but also what needed to happen. And then they, at a certain point, I think they wanted me out of the house and they were like, you know what? You have one more shot. Where do you want to go? We're going to help you for three months. Just get a job. And I was like, okay. What do you mean it needed to happen? If that didn't happen and I was enabled to continue doing what I was doing and they weren't like pulling the plug on, you know, financial help, I would have kept doing exactly what I was doing. Got it. So they give you another chance. They give me another chance. And I was like, I want to go to Boston. We had gone there as a child, like when I was a kid for like Cape Cod trips and Martha's Vineyard on spring break, that kind of thing. But I think it was, it wasn't New York, but it was close enough to the idea of what New York was. So that's why I went. And my brother went with me to help me find my first apartment. Every apartment we looked at, he said, you know, mom and dad aren't going to pay for this much money. Like you need to lower your standards. So I moved and I got a job and I started on the journey of becoming an adult. Where did you apply for jobs? I applied to, I don't actually remember everywhere I applied to, but my first job was top of the hub and I got it within three weeks of living in Boston. And so give us a little run through of some of the kitchens there. So I worked at Top of the Hub. It was like a beast of a restaurant, 600 covers a night. Yeah. I mean, massive, like at the top, you know, at the tallest point in the city and the tallest building, you know, with the 360 view, that kind of restaurant. And honestly, that's where I learned how to be a line cook because I had never been a line cook before because I, again, didn't have a lot of experience once leaving Chicago. And it was, it sucked, but it was also so much fun. And it only sucked because I was like, wanted more for myself. But I also was like leaning into the fact like, okay, like I'm kind of good at this. Me and my best friend who 
I didn't know was going to be my best friend at the time, but we're working the station together and we're just like rocking out, having an awesome fun time together. How long were you there for in that kitchen? I think it was like a year and a half. And then I was offered an executive chef position at a restaurant, which is no longer there. It was horribly run. I was 24 years old. I did not earn that job, nor do I, whatever, anyways. But I took the job. I brought along my best friend and checks started to bounce. And I was like, wait a second, this doesn't feel right. And then I started working for Guy Martin at Sensing Restaurant. Got it. And how long were you there? At Sensing? Yeah. Two years. And then after Sensing, I went to Barbara Lynch. And I was with Barbara for four and a half years through Top Chef. And she's actually the one that got me to go on Top Chef. How was your experience with Barbara Lynch? Amazing. Yeah. She's ter- I was terrified, absolutely terrified of her. She's intimidating. And I think anyone who's ever met her will tell you the same thing. But the thing about Barbara is that the greatest thing about her is that she is such a champion of people that show and earn that place. And so I did a good job. There are a lot of different series of dinners and events that we did together that she was like, wow, who are you? Like, because she's got 300 employees. I mean, how am I going to stand out? But apparently I did. And so she started to trust me and she we built that trust together. She would, you know, bring me on things to help her set up events because she knew I could do it. And I kept her organized and all these different things. And for me, Barbara was the one to see potential in people before they saw it in themselves. And I think that's her greatest gift. So she was the one who encouraged you to go out for Top Chef? She came back on season nine. She was the finale guest judge. And she'd come back and I'm sure producers casting, they asked her, hey, do you have any women that you can put forth from your company that you think would be good for Top Chef? She put forth, I think, three of us, two of us, myself and my best friend, were the ones to actually go through with the whole thing. My best friend got eliminated on the first episode and I ended up winning. So yeah, she was like, you're going. And I said, I'm not going. She said, you're going. You didn't want to. Okay. No. Oh my God. No. And I would, I didn't want to go out of fear of losing or embarrassing myself. And that's where I say that she can see potential in people because there's no way I would have ever thought by myself I was capable of succeeding on that show. Okay, so you mentioned they asked for three women. Prior to you, in 10 seasons of that show, there was one female winner, Steph Iser. Mm-hmm. Did you and or do you care about that? Like, did that drive you at all? Or were you just like a dumb No, pro? at that point, season, I mean, season 10, it was 2012, 2013, 10 years ago. Oh my God, 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about strong, powerful women. And how come there's only been one woman winner on top? Like, I wasn't thinking that way. Now I understand. Sure. But that was not for me a driving force at all. Okay. So you go on Top Chef, you get kicked off during restaurant wars, correct me if I'm wrong here. And then you make your way back in during Last Chance Kitchen and wind up winning the season. Did you just put your head down and cook? Was it like a fuck this, I'm coming Mm. back? Like, what was your motivation there? Like, did you think you were done and you weren't going to be back? Uh, You know, on that show, you go on clearly knowing that there's going to be a winner, right? I went on maybe not, it was definitely in my forefront of like, I don't want to lose, but it wasn't, I don't want to lose is different than I want to win. So I carried, I just don't want to lose. So whatever that meant. I didn't go in with any expectation, probably because I was too scared. Not It wasn't like a conscious decision of being like, I'm going to manage my expectations. It was, I'm just 
terrified and my anxiety is like at an all time high and let's just make it. Let's just try to make it one day at a time. And so I think that was kind of the thing. And when I got kicked off, I, I cried out of fear of embarrassing my family, Barbara, letting someone down, all the things. Because for me in my brain at that point, Restaurant Wars is mid-season. I hadn't made it far enough to feel accomplished yet. And so I don't know where that that would have ended. Like, was it would it have been top four and I would have been fine? Maybe, probably. I think I would have just been like, okay, great. I did good enough. But I knew halfway wasn't good enough for me. And the fear that I had of letting, you know, people down. And so I guess once Last Chance Kitchen started, I think I relieved myself of pressure. But maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit more of I want to win in there than there was before. But honestly, I can't, I don't remember. I don't. I never have this overwhelming feeling and memory of like, Kristen, you're gonna win. This is what it's gonna be. And if you don't win, then you suck. Like I never thought of it that way. I don't know how I thought about it, and to be quite frank. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so what? Ha- so after Top Chef, there's this like gap. Well, probably didn't feel like a gap for you, but for us watching you, there's this gap of when you win to like, let's say when you open our low gray. What are you doing between this time? Oh, I am. So I, during all of Top Chef and the duration of it airing, I continued working at Stir, which was Barbara's restaurant in which my first job that was with Barbara at Stir. And I stayed there. I stayed there for a while. And then another position opened up in her same company at the fine dining restaurant called Monton. And it was Relay Chateau property, very fine dining, tasting menu, that kind of thing. And the chef de cuisine was leaving. And we kind of talked about that. Maybe that's my next step. Let's give that a try. So I continued working for Barbara. I made the jump over to that other restaurant. I particularly had a lot of challenges over there personally, professionally, just it wasn't for me with, and it wasn't the right people for me with the exception of Barbara and a lot of like the top people, but like the everyday people working in the restaurant. Yeah. It was just whatever. Anyways. So I only lasted about nine months when I decided, all right, Kristen, like this is BS. I'd like to remove myself from this space. And I did. And Barbara was the number one fan encouraging me to say, you know what, go out and spread your wings. Absolutely. I support you. So did you have a plan? I did not have a plan. But what I knew that Top Chef was already providing me, I was getting like little deals here and there. I was already honestly seeing more money than my salary. So in that sense, I was like, what am I doing? If I had loved that restaurant and if I loved being there, I probably would have stayed. But the combination of me not loving that job and then making more money than my salary, my very low salary, it was a good step for me. And so I kind of went out and I, you know, was starting to travel. I was doing pop-ups all over the place, eventually writing a cookbook, hosting 36 hours and just kind of figuring it out, trying to figure out what I wanted to do long-term. Got it. Arlo Gray comes along. You are on the road a lot, I take it. Is it tough to run, have a restaurant when you can't be there night after night? I, when I opened the restaurant, uh, we opened June of 2018. We started like really hammering down the deal like early January of 2018. Conversation started a year before that, but we're really ramping up. Construction started to happen. I moved there full time to Austin, March of 2018, and I live in the hotel for two years. Wow. So I, I did. I live. <laughs> I was there during like the infancy and the time of it being born to set the standard you know, kind of lay the ground and then 
train the people that I needed to train in order for them to run the day to day. So it was always it was always a plan. I knew exactly who I wanted to take over as executive chef when I left. And then him and I just worked very closely together. And my kitchen is I mean, they've been my sous chefs, my sous chef and my executive chef have been with me since opening 2018. Amazing. And let me go back. I by no means meant it as you put your name on this restaurant and you're out. I <laughs> knew you were busting your ass in there, but I also know it's like been there now and is established yeah, yeah. in the city. And so I'm always like wondering, like, how does that feel? No, no, no. It's a, val- it's a valid thing. I mean, there's people and chefs that that works where they can, you know, crank out restaurants like year after year. I, I can't do that. And this is why, the, why I'm only choosing to have one. I was going to ask if you want more. Because I know how much time I like to put into it. I know how much time I like to be there during a certain amount of that beginning period. And because I already knew that I wasn't going to live there full time, because that was already kind of the plan, I knew that I had two years to make it okay for me to do that. And so that's what I was working towards. Now you're traveling and doing awesome shows and things like that. And I feel like I see on Instagram... Um, here I am back to Instagram, (laughs) this new show restaurants at the end of the world. Yes. So this post says, I've always been curious about how people live, operate and what it means to belong to their environment and community being adopted. I often think about that. I could have ended up belonging to any family in any place in any part of the world. It's pretty powerful. Does this curiosity and empathy drive you Mm. in personal or business life? Yes, both personal and professional, mostly in my personal life. I think for a long time I knew I was adopted, but I didn't understand what that actually meant until I've gotten much older. And so coming to a place where my life is kind of, it is fallen into a place in which that I really like and that I love and I worked hard to get it. So now I'm able to kind of think about like when you step back and you're like, I think also when you get older, you start to get a little bit more reflective with your thoughts. (laughs) And so I like think about like, God, like, I always think about my birth mother, that she could be, she is she a chef? I don't know. Was she a prostitute and actually accidentally got like knocked up and they had to give me away? Perhaps. I don't know. And so I think that question of, it's like a constant thing in my head. Oftentimes, maybe it's like a little bit further back than it is up front. But that for me is like, I pass anyone, I look at anyone's lives and I'm like, that those could have been the people that adopted me. Like, But they're not. And my family is. So it's, it's just a I don't know. It's just adult thinking, I guess. It probably creates a huge sense of empathy for you. Almost like you never know what's going on behind closed doors with anyone, any family, any, you know. Right. And I also think that it helps me become more empathetic. I, I don't, I wouldn't have ever said that I'm an empathetic person for like all of my life. I think certain circumstances in life teach us how to tap in and how to recognize what empathy means and how we're able to channel those feelings and what they feel like. And I think the more people I meet, the more countries I travel to, the more random conversations I get to have on shows like restaurants at the end of the world, those kind of things kind of solidify empathy in my life. Let's talk about April 18th. Uh huh. <laughs> Not because it's my birthday, but <laughs> <laughs> rather the significance of that date in your life. Talk to me about Bianca. Well, I have many questions, but I'll save some of them. Okay. <laughs> Talk to us a little yeah, bit about that. She's in the biz, yeah? Was. 
for a long, long time until recently, very, very recently, where she's decided to do something that's like fulfills her more. Good for her. Yeah. So, yeah, we got married April 18th of 2021 and in our backyard, (laughs) very homemade. It was just the two of us and the justice of the peace picture frames, you know, like on some shelves, very homemade. And our family was set up on Zoom. And we had like an hour long little ceremony thing. I made tacos afterwards. We ate wedding cake and drank champagne and realized then we don't really like to drink. So that was the kind of the last of that. (laughs) That's so funny. Wait, so do you guys, do you talk shop uh, a lot at home with her? She helped me open the restaurant. So she, she was the corporate food and beverage director for the corporate company that owns the hotel so she was in charge of all the new openings did you know her then is that how you- I, the, I that's how we met ah yeah yeah okay, okay yeah got it and so she's very good at what she does in food and beverage she's also had a great deal of passion for helping people on like a holistic in a holistic arena and food and beverage at a certain point would just started to drain her anyways so she, yeah she was the corporate food and beverage director that's how we met she then transferred to be a global VP of food and beverage for another large hotel group when she was there for a while. And before that, she had always worked in food and beverage. And we talk shop, but not in like the way that maybe you think of. It's very much like she is very good at this part and I'm good at like the tiny, tiny little pebble on the side. Like I know the food, she knows the business. And so, yeah, we we talk about it when it's constructive, but it is not a normal thing we generally talk about, no. Got it. What three words would Bianca use to describe you? Impatient, (laughs) kind, and oh my God, aware. I don't know. I just made that up. I have no idea. Actually, yeah. I'm going to ask her when we're done with this. <laughs> yeah. I was doing this with Eric Repair in his office mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. And I asked him, like, what I asked him what there was a sous chef would say about him. And he's like, I don't know. Do you want to ask him? I'm like, sure. So he called to the kitchen to have a sous chef come in the room. And I was like, this sous chef is probably shitting their pants right now. Yeah. Like, oh, crap. Chef's calling me in his office. Okay. What three words would you use to describe yourself? Hardworking nurturing and loving. I got a lot of love. If if you are my people and you are like, like there is an infinite amount of love for you. If I don't know you, maybe that's not the case, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. All right. So for our very regular Beyond the Plate podcast listeners. Next week is June 15th, which is a big day coming up for Chef. For those of you who may be listening to this after that, you will have likely already watched this. But June 15th, we'll see you co-hosting in Kitchen Stadium for the Netflix new Iron Chef reboot along with Elton Brown. How does this come about? Like, explain that call. How how did that feel? (laughs) As you know, TV projects, people talk about them all the time. They're like, hey, are you interested? And then you never hear from them again. It's this constant, like, I mean, the Nat Geo project took years before it actually came to fruition. And so this one happened very fast. Within three weeks, I got a call from my manager who said, hey, the producers of The New Iron Chef, they're rebooting it on Netflix. They're interested in talking to you. My first thing out of my mouth was, I'm not cooking. I'm not competitively cooking. No way. You thought you were going to be an Iron Chef or a Challenge or something like that? Like They were looking either for, I think they wanted me to be an Iron Chef. They weren't casting like the competitors yet and all that stuff. They were trying to find their mainstay cast. And so 
I was like, I squashed that right at the beginning. They're, my manager was like, I told them that before they could like, I told them that already. You don't even have to tell them, but they're likely going to ask you again. And I was like, okay. So I get on the phone. He's like, all right, you, we need you to schedule a call with these two guys. I talked to them. One of them was in the Top Chef world for a long time. So he knew of me already. And then the other one has been the longtime producer of Iron Chef America for the decades that it's been on TV, I think. And I had competed once on Iron Chef America. I lost, but it was such a memorable experience. And clearly it was memorable for them too, because they remembered who I was. Also on the Netflix side, there's a woman who I knew from Top Chef back during my season, she was working for Top working for Bravo or whatever it is. So there are already people that knew of me in a certain context. So anyways, we get on this call, looking at these two guys, Daniel and Aton, and I'm like, all right, I'm not gonna cook because my anxiety can't handle it anymore, but I'd be open to judging or hosting. Like I just, I, th- I threw out hosting as if it was like a, it wasn't gonna do anything. I was like, me? Yeah, right, but I said it. And then a couple weeks later, they're like, so they want to entertain you being the host. And then we just waited for the final deal to come in and the offer, and that was it. We, uh, very uh, Three weeks. It was all kind of basically settled. I love that. Yeah. What's the dynamic like with you and Elton? Oh my God, I love him. I mean, I told him the very first day that we met during rehearsals. Okay, so let me, let's bring it back to like the first day. I'm nervous. I'm a nervous wreck. I have binders of like information on the chefs and like the menus and like just like dictionaries of information. I was like, oh my God, I don't learn like this. This is crazy. So I show up, we do a rehearsal day first. I'm like in my hoodie and a hat and whatever. And I meet Elton and I'm like fucking shitting myself. Like I'm just standing at kitchen stadium. It's like still being built a little bit. And I'm like meeting this guy and I was like, oh my God. And then we're standing up on our podiums where you're going to see us, you know, most of the time. And I looked at him, I said, I hope this, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way, but I've been watching you since I was like a child on Good Eats and like, a bit like, this is wild. So I confessed my love. We ran through the rehearsals. I was like, oh my God, that was awful. Christine, you suck. Like you're going to get fired, like all this stuff. We show up the next day for the first real battle and I'm terrified still, terrified. And it goes great. Like there was nothing wrong with it, but like I wasn't yet feeling settled. And me and Elton afterwards, we had a conversation. He was like, what do you need from me? And I asked him the same question because he is a solo entity of this show for a very long time. He didn't have to bounce off anybody and he just did his thing. And so we kind of like talked about what would be helpful and what our roles are. And then episode two, like best friends. I love him. I think he's great. Yeah. And the beauty about him is that because he's been this solo entity, Good Eats, Iron Chef America, Cutthroat Kitchen, he's been the solo host for him to, for years, like decades, for him to come into this role and have a natural warmth and tendency of opening up to say, how can I make your life easier and be so accommodating? I thought that was, I mean, a lot of people can't do that. Yeah, so. that's really cool. I was going to ask how you prepare for a show like that, because it's a beast. Like you said, there's a dish, there's ingredients, you know, there's the chef and you need to be on your toes, right? Yeah. I mean, they give you a lot of information. You kind of have a general idea of like menu items and courses. So you can, because when you're watching two chefs cook with their team and you're just like 
trying to figure out what's going on, you have no idea. It looks like a big blur down there. And not until the last five minutes, you actually see things come together. And so we're given a list of, you know, different things, ingredients that they are potentially using and, you know, a direction of like who they are and a little bit of information. My research every night when I got finished was to research the the next visiting chef. So I would watch YouTube videos and then I would try to learn about what their food is, but not too much because I want to discover stuff you know, as we're playing in real time. For the most part, I leaned heavily into the story and who these people are. And Elton is very like factual, smart, so smart of ingredients and like, this is what things are. Got so it. Got I it. think we, we brought the balance and I think someone from Netflix has already said somewhere the the mix between him and I, for a long time, Iron Chef was purely about like these dishes and it's very like structured without the layer of who the people are and like carrying the theme all the way through. Because as we have learned, knowing about a chef personally and where they come from and who they are and how they grew up impacts how they cook now. So we're leaning much heavier into storytelling of the people. I like that. That's very cool. I'm excited to see that. Super excited. <laughs> when I emailed our podcast team, you know, that we were recording, like most of them were like, hell yeah, can't wait for Iron Chef. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to have like, Chris and Kish, top chef. Now I can have something else. Right. <laughs> fast, fast Foodies was like a little bit, but it's like on a smaller network. So I think yeah. this will help the credentials out a little I bit I love too. it. Wanted to hit upon social impact and giving back. All of our guests on this podcast give back in different ways. It's one of the main reasons why we started it, to share what our guests do beyond a plate in the restaurant or on TV or a book. As you know, it's no secret. You all can do a different event or something every single night of the week. So I just wanted to kind of let you highlight some of the work projects, organizations that you work with. You've traveled the world personally and through your work life and TV, and you've seen a lot. I guess we'll start with what motivates you to give back. What motivates me to give back, I think what really kicked it off was feeling like I had the ability to now give back. For a long time, I felt like I didn't have, I didn't have enough presence, I didn't have enough money, I didn't have things to like actually do it. And so it's the idea of now that I can, now I feel free to explore so much. I feel like as, as my life has ventured into a place of maybe abundance is the right word, just in general, it does not feel right to not pay that forward. It just does not sit right. And so when we opened our little gray, one of my first things is, you know, we have restaurant weeks. No one that works in restaurants is a fan of restaurant week ever. <laughs> and so instead of restaurant week, I opted to do our three top sellers. I think it was three when we first opened, um, three top sellers and donate portions of dollars from each of those items anytime it's sold to an organization. So it was off rest official restaurant week of Austin by a week, we moved it. And then the first year we gave back to out youth. So I like tapping into things that feel incredibly personal to me. So being a kid and being gay, I know what that feels like and not having the support sometimes, not saying my family was not a support, but I didn't feel confident enough to even say it to them. And so, you know, we do things like that. When we reopened, we partnered with Matthew McConaughey and Camilla McConaughey and his alcohol, Long Branch, to then give back to a charity. So if we're selling food, why can't we just take a little bit and shuffle it somewhere else? You know, the guest is already going to buy it. So it's an easy way to extract dollars and do that. One of my recent projects, I partnered with Upwork. 
And I created a children's book with all the proceeds going to charity called What's in the Mirror, which is highlights care and awareness and mental health awareness for the gay community, black community, and communities of color. Amazing. And trans community. Is that book out right now? It is. Yep. So it's going to keep running, I think, until December. Like it's, you know, there's an end to it. But yeah, they get all the they get all the profits from that. You know, being fortunate to partner with so many larger companies like brands, a lot of times they will do things where, you know, I can add a charity in. You know, I think one of the greatest things I just filmed for, I don't know if I can say, I just did an episode for this other like cooking show. And one of the great perks of why I wanted to do it was because they were donating $10,000 to a charity of my choice. So I try to connect and align myself with people that like to give back. But that's, I mean, those are the things that we have the luxury. If we're already going to do this work, we might as well leverage that and kind of make it a bigger thing. On top of that, also personally, I obviously have my personal choices of charities that I donate to on an annual basis. Gosh, anything from Ali Forney Center, obviously with the recent happenings right now, donating to the families and the school in Texas, gay community, the adoptee communities. I like to really lean into connecting myself with, I guess, maybe the places that I see a young struggling Kristen in. So I try to change it up. I try to share the love yeah. as much as I can. Yeah, I've seen awesome things you've done with AAPI. I mean, World Center of Kitchen. You're definitely a giver. I try. I try. You've semi-referenced this twice, and now I have a question that sometimes I ask earlier in an episode, but I didn't ask you, but now I'm going to ask you. It was, you referenced like accomplished, accomplishment, something like that. At what point in your career did you feel accomplished? Or when did you realize you made it as a chef or made it? I'll just use that term loose. Sure. I've never felt like I've made it ever. However, I do remember the moment I felt so proud of myself and accomplished was when I moved to Boston. I got my job working at, you know, top of the hub as a line cook. And like we kind of talked about before, Chicago, my parents paid for everything, bills, cell phone bills, everything, apartment. So when I took over paying my own rent in Boston and I took over my phone bill and I got off their plan, that was huge for me huge because I don't know, I, maybe it's a marker of feeling more like an, an adult or feeling like I am contributing and not taking from my parents anymore. It just, I think I took so much from them in Chicago, like horribly selfish that being able to say, mom and dad, you don't have to pay for my cell phone bill. I mean, it was like, it's probably like $60 at the time or whatever, but those are the moments where I'm like, wow, it's not the, it's not these big things. These TV shows may or may not continue for years to come or just one season. I don't know. So to hang my hat and say, those are the things that make me feel accomplished. I, I can't do that. There's too much risk involved in that. So it's the, it's the small things. I feel accomplished. The fact that I was able to get married and proudly get married, you know, that we settled into a home together that we bought, like all these different things. I think it's the life moments of what you strive for when you're a child. You know, I love that. Thanks for sharing all of that. And I want to jump back to something you said, and I say this every episode and I probably sound like a broken record and I don't care because if one new person hears it, I think it's huge, but you hit upon it too. You give back in so many different ways. It's probably through your voice. It's probably through your time. It's probably through your wallet. And those are three incredible ways for people to give back. I think you ran through some awesome examples and, you know, whether you have 
you know, $1 to your name or a million dollars to your name. Sometimes a social media post is incredibly helpful. Sometimes volunteering 30 minutes a month is helpful. And sometimes just, you know, using your voice is incredibly helpful. Thank you for doing that. And for anyone listening, you know, you don't have to have all the money in the world to say that you give back, you know. And that's that's one thing that I've learned because I used to think, oh, just because I didn't have a certain amount of things or people paying attention to what I was saying, felt like I, n- I had no right to say anything. Who was I going to impact? But I don't know. Tell the cashier checking you out at some place or tell your brother at family Christmas. I don't care who you tell, but as long as you can like at least spread some good, like that's all we can kind of hope for. And all the small things that each person in this world can do will add up to be a great value. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's wrap up with a little speed round and then a closing question. What did you have for dinner last night? Soup. Boring, so boring, so boring. <laughs> so boring. <laughs> Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Oh, as it's cooking, onions and garlic, hands down. 15 minutes afterwards, when it smells like BO on your shirt, I don't like it. <laughs> Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. 15 minutes after. No, I'm just kidding. Salmon. Salmon. Yeah. Agreed. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Inefficiency and rudeness. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Oh, when things are just like clicking and all the gears are working and you just can kind of kind of take a step back. You're like, damn, like this is a machine. Yeah. I like it. Name a go-to snack in your pantry. Chips, potato chips. Any certain. Always. Certain flavor. I will take any. I will take anything. You'll take plain or you'll take like cheddar and sour cream or barbecue or whatever any and all and we'll throw in tortilla chips in there as well all right chips flavored tortilla chips how do you feel about hints of lime yeah oh yeah (laughs) i'm all about it (laughs) so funny all right summer grilling season coming up any favorite things to put in a bun on a roll or the like it has nothing to do with grilling but ice cream and a sweet brioche bun i just did that i saw that Oh, so good. So good. Honestly, I'm a big, like, I love kielbasas. I love Polish sausages. I don't have them very often, but to me, when I think of like summer barbecue and especially my wife being from Australia, like sausage sizzles are like a thing that they do. So I'm all about it. I love a hot dog bun over a hamburger bun. Yeah. Got it. Love it. All right. So what advice would you give to a young cook who, let's just say a young cook, maybe they feel lost, maybe they don't know where they want to be or what type of kitchen or what city they want to go to, any advice you'd give to them? Patience and be kind to yourself. There's no pressure to figure it all out at a certain amount of time. You just got to kind of be patient and you also got to be nice to yourself because I oftentimes would beat myself up when I didn't hit these milestones. And that just set me back even more, you know, a little patience and kindness. Speaking of milestones, where is Kristen Kish five years from now? All I can hope for is just that internal happiness still. That's, I don't know. Maybe the TV shows will still be going. Maybe there'll be new ones. Maybe there may be another restaurant, probably not, but you never know. I leave it open and uh, accepting, I accept anything and everything at the right time. I was going to ask if you are open to all opportunities and things like that. I I say yes until I want to say no. So that's kind of my general rule. Got it. I loved this. Thank you, Chris. And I really appreciate it. I'm glad we were able to, you know, spend a little time. I know you're super busy and have 19 TV shows that you have to do work <laughs> for. <laughs> but no, you're, you're a joy to talk to. You're, you know, happy. And it's just honestly a joy to 
to have the dialogue with you about all these different things. And I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. So, thank you for having thank me. Thank you. I'm sure I'll see you in some city at some festival in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We'll cross paths very soon, yeah. I'm sure. All right. Have a good rest of the week and have a good weekend. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Too. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks again to Chef Kristen Kish. Find more on her through her Instagram at Kristen L. Kish. That's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-L-K-I-S-H. To learn more about Out Youth, go to outyouth.org. To learn more about Allie Forney Center, go to alleyforneycenter.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, John Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast to Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at One Hope Wine. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.